This is one of those studies for us, uh, chapter 20, uh, that's probably um, one of the most debated studies uh, that we would have in the Revelation, and uh, people disagree on it, and that's uh, one of those things that, you know, uh, we just have to understand. Um, someone asked me earlier uh, if I had, a, you know, or if the church had a certain position, and I just think we don't. I mean, we have, uh, I'm going to take a position this morning, but... There are a lot of people in this church that have differing uh, beliefs and, and thoughts about Revelation 20. And so, um, you know, that's just kind of part of it. So if you wanted to listen a little more about like the different positions, want to understand them a little better, uh, Ryan Brown um, taught on the kind of, I guess he, he taught a thing on the last days or the, those studies uh, last summer, I believe. And uh, you could go back and, and find that and he will um, online. And we, we have that available, and you could kind of get the different positions in your head. So if you would bow with me, we'll, we'll get started this morning. Father, we are grateful to be able to sit before your word. I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts to see more clearly what you've revealed to us. We are so grateful that you um, have revealed these things uh, to us through your word. We know that, that um, we may not all agree or understand fully. Uh, what you have given us here, um, but we we can come away with truths that would change our lives, and we ask that you would allow us to, to do that today by the power of your Spirit, you would move. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so um, just remember, one thing to remember as we are working through this is uh, we are, really the call of this book is to, to remain faithful to the end uh, with the Lord, to, to, to be steadfast to the end, and know that ultimately what chapter 21 and 22 is going to do is show us what, what great uh, blessings there are in store for God's people. And so I think that's important as you kind of step into these waters today. Just remember as you move to the end, those things are true. We can know those uh, and most everybody would agree on 21 and 22, I think. And what we're seeing is that, that the Lord is going to be with his people. He's going to keep them uh, to the very end. Now, in chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, as we start moving through this, I think it's just important to understand, of course, that people would, we, sometimes you see this titled the millennium. Uh, the, 1 through 3 seems to show us earthly aspects of the millennium, in my opinion. And then chapters uh, 20, verses 4 through 6, you kind of have these heavenly aspects of the millennium. And we'll kind of unpack that as we move forward. Uh, the concept of the millennium here is another way of, of it's, it's a way of illustrating some wonderful truths. Um, I think maybe the first you could say is the millennium is that period of time uh, during which the ultimate destruction of Satan is expressed in a preliminary way. So I think that's what you see in, as you're moving through that. Uh, it's in, in, in anticipation for, for what's going to come at the very end. Another truth is, is that this period of time it is really a time during which the ultimate victory of God's people is on display. And I think you see that uh, in verses 4 through 6. Then we'll get to 27 through 10 and we'll see Satan's final rebellion, which is tied to what we see in 1 through 3, certainly. And then 2011 through 15, we see the great white throne judgment. And so we are going to see the judgment of Satan and the judgment of those who have aligned themselves with him. So... Hopefully those things will help you as we move through uh, this study and work through it. 
Um, 21 through 3, as we get started, like the, these earthly aspects of the millennium or God's reign or Christ's reign, you might say, are on display here. Now, if you've worked through the revelation with us, there are these different themes uh, that come to us uh, over and over. And what we talked about, and I don't know if you, they're almost like recycled before us. Um, early on, I think at some point, we, we talked about like a football game. And when you watch a football game, and, and you're watching maybe on television, after the play, oftentimes they'll show you that play from different angles or different vantage points. And sometimes it's when a call is in question. Uh, but what you find out is, as you look at it from different angles, you get a better understanding of that play. And I think here, we're going to see that. Uh, we're getting different things that will kind of help us see uh, different aspects of what God is uh, doing. And so, now, some of us, and may kind of see it this way, but I don't see it this way, but I think some would see chapter 19. After you get to chapter 19, it's like chapters in a book. When you get to chapter 20, the same, uh, I mean, it's like telling more of the story. And so they would read sometimes the Revelation and try to make it very chronological where you get to chapter 19 and then chapter 20 and chapter 20 really is just uh, building on what happened in chapter 19. Now, the way the Revelation works, since we are seeing different glimpses, different pictures uh, of different events, sometimes what will happen is uh, you'll see, you'll be in one section like for instance, chapter 11, and in chapter 11, it comes to the final, the end. Everything, it's like the saints are uh, rejoicing because God has uh, defeated all their enemies. When you get to chapter 12, uh, there, there's like a total, you would think you would get to the end, but it's, it's not. It's not the new heavens and the new earth. In chapter 12, when you come to it, it's a flashback to the first coming of Christ. And I kind of see that going on here. Chapter 19, you see uh, the, the kind of, you would say, the final judgment going on in chapter 20. You have a flashback. And you're going to go back to the first part of the New Testament. And, and hopefully, uh, really, in my mind, you're going to see uh, how between the first and second coming, what's going to be on display there is this millennium age. And that's where, uh, in my opinion, where we live today. So... Uh, when we're looking at 21 through 6, I think it's important just to, I want you to glance at 23, verse 3. And um, you just kind of, one of the things you'll notice here is if chapter 19, everyone is destroyed and all is lost. When you get to 20, verse 3, you would say, who's left? And the answer would be, there wouldn't be anyone left. But in 23, we see, again... We're brought back to this thing where, in my mind, we're starting back and getting a snapshot. And we're going back to the beginning of the New Testament era when Jesus came. So, now, a couple of little things, other things I think that you need to keep in mind when we think about the millennium or the reign. Uh, we, first is this. Um, I don't know that there's any other passage that you can read in the Bible that will talk about this. It's very unique. In chat, Revelation 20 is a very unique passage unless uh, we're saying that it's talking about something we've continually talked about and it's been brought up throughout our study. Uh, the other thing I think, so if that's the case, I think you could say the revelation is not a new material. The revelation is material written in a new way. And again, that's how I would see that. 
Hopefully all that stuff is really clear now. No, but I just kind of lay that out for you because I want you to keep that in mind as we move through uh, this, this, this work here. Now, the other thing is this. Um, we're going to see a lot about the dragon and that's, or Satan or the serpent. And when we see that, it's kind of one of those things where we've seen others judge, but now we're going to see him come under judgment. And his destruction is going to be on display. And in verses 1 through 3, you see his destruction in a way, in a preliminary sense. And in verses 7 through 10, you see it in a final sense. So hopefully that will help you as you go forward. Verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. This angel doesn't look like uh, other angels where we'll talk about their appearance. Rather, this angel, there's nothing said about his appearance but what he is there to do. He's holding this key and an iron chain, and you kind of say, and, and it's all tied to this bottomless pit, and you kind of have this idea of, of Satan being uh, bound up and then thrown in this bottomless pit. Now, are these literal things, those literal chains or literal uh, key or a literal uh, thing of like where you're saying that he was actually bound sometimes we have in our minds like uh, Satan looks like the little red little dressed up red figure that gets on your shoulder and and yet the Bible speaks of the, the Satan as an angel as a spirit he is he, he is not uh, he is not like what we would kind of think of uh, where we think he's like a man in our minds when we just depict him and so we see this going on, and I don't think it's a literal, these are literal things like he's actually chained up and he's got, there's a key that he's carrying around, keeping him locked up there. But I, I think this is Satan's jailer. Satan is a real being that comes to, he's sought to attack the church, he's frustrated, sought to frustrate the plans of God, and now he is being restrained, is kind of, is the picture that you're getting here. Verse 2 and 3, And he seized the dragon, that ancient servant, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, that bottomless pit, we've already studied some in chapter 9. We saw it. It's this, there's this angel we'll see of the abyss or the fallen star, which speaks of Satan where he let some of his demons out. And so this bottomless pit, or this, uh, this same thing, this, this pit that he's thrown into is the place where kind of you could say that the, that the demons and the demonic realm is held. Uh, it is um, really the place where they, they are until they're thrown into the lake of fire. And we see that um, presented so he is thrown, in da- thrown down into this bottomless pit. He's seized. He's, he's, he's um, really, like I said, he is restrained here. And how long has this happened? It's for a thousand years he is restrained. Now, is it a literal thousand years? Is that what we're dealing with here? So a literal thousand years? Well, the struggle for me is in chapters 1 through 19, throughout it, numbers are used symbolically. They are used symbolically throughout the, the revelation. Uh, we see the number seven over and over. We see 12,000 times 12. We see these ten-headed uh, uh, beasts. I mean, all this stuff, there's sympotic, uh, sorry, symbolic language going on throughout the revelation. And um, it's, it, I think we have to say, when we're looking at that, we have to say, I, I would lean towards, likely we're talking about a symbolic 
period of time. Now, I'll use an example for you, like when you hear somebody say, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. What, what do they mean? Is that literal or is that symbolic? Is it just a thousand hills that God owns? You know, kind of that's what goes in your mind. Well, you say, no, of course not. There's, God owns a thousand and one hills, you know. No, no, we say that just it's a way of saying an idea of completeness there. He owns all things. I can trust him. He's keeping me. He's watching over me. He he there's no his 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 wealth is beyond measure, we could say. So what is happening in this place here or what does this all mean that Satan's bound? And I think that's something important that we need to ask ourselves. Um, What does the text say? That, that, that's the big question. What does the text say? Why is Satan bound? So that he will not deceive the nations uh, any longer. He's bound for this extended period of time so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. Now, that's important and we're going to pick that back up here later and we'll look at it more closely. But then you have to keep moving forward and say... Does that mean he can't do anything right now? If we were to look at this and we say, he's bound, but does that mean he's inactive? Totally inactive. Well, in the text it says, so he cannot deceive the nations any longer. There's something of that that reminds us, hold on just a second. Maybe his binding is a restraining. He He is, at this point, he is restrained from doing that. Later, we'll see in Revelation 20, when he is unrestrained, what does he do? He deceives all the nations. And what does he do with them? He gathers them to come and destroy God and his people. So, at least at this point, we'd have to say that I believe that he is bound, he is restrained, and he is incapable of doing what he had done before. Now, I think it also is important just to say, just for for us to work through this just a little bit more, to say that, you know, when you're looking at um, uh, the period of time before Christ's coming, before the first coming of Jesus, what was it like among the nations? The nations were, in a way, I'm not totally united, but they were united in rebellion against God, or you could say, besides the Jewish people, all the other nations were in rebellion against God. You, you see that when Christ comes, there is this radical shift in the Bible where the nations are now coming to faith in a very radical way. They're coming from every tribe, tongue, and nation. At the very outset of the Gospel of Matthew, the Magi show up and they're, they are really, they're coming to worship Jesus. When you move into the book of Acts and you you were working through that, you see at Pentecost, the nations, people are from every tongue are hearing the gospel and the nations are coming in. In Acts chapter 14, uh, uh, Paul said in past generation, God has allowed all nations to go their way. But there's something shifting here. Acts 17 speaks of the time of ignorance. God is overlooked, but now he's commanding all people to repent, believe the gospel. So what are we talking about here? We are talking about Satan being bound or restrained. That, 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 that power to draw all nations to be really uh, in rebellion against God and to gather them all up. He is restrained from doing that. He's still active. 
but he has restrained, the text says, from gathering all these nations uh, together. Now, another thing to just think about, when Luke chapter 10, when Jesus sent out the 70 missionaries, two by two, he sends them out, and what does he do? When he sends them out, they return to him, and Jesus, they're all ecstatic, and they're like saying, we can cast out demons, and Jesus said, I saw Satan fall. It's one of those things where you're seeing the kingdom of God is ushered in. And things are changing. Jesus brings in this power and you see what he's doing. He's overthrowing the powers of darkness. He is, and I, I think, restraining them. In John chapter 12, you see Jesus again speaking to Greek people. And he speaks of drawing all people to himself. And he speaks of the ruler of this world being driven out. In, in, in Matthew chapter 12. The Pharisees show up and say, you know how you're doing the things you're doing? You're doing those by uh, casting out demons like you're in the spirit of Beelzebub, like you're satanic. And he says to them, he speaks to them. And Jesus responds by explaining the true basis for his ability to, to exercise exorcism, I guess you could say. He says, how could someone come into Satan's house unless he first bound him or restrained him jesus comes and in a very like we're seeing this on display where he has he's binded satan in like confusing all the nations and you're seeing the gospel transform hearts all around and we're seeing that even today every time every time you see somebody come to faith believe repent in the gospel, you're saying that they, these Gentile people around us are being, they're, they're, they're believing and understanding and they're experiencing the gospel in a very powerful way. So, if reading this properly, in my opinion, the way I, I, I think this is, the devil is bound for a thousand years to secure the advancement of the gospel between the first and second coming. We are living in that age when the gospel when Jesus came, the kingdom of God had come, and you are seeing very powerfully and vividly the work of the kingdom. Well, as you saw him do this kingdom work, you're watching him. He hands it over to his disciples, and they proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, and people are being set free from every tribe, tongue, and nation. How is this happening? Because Satan does not have the power to deceive as he did before. He cannot corporately across the board deceive all the nations. He's not drawing them together. He will do that. And we'll see that uh, in a moment. In the future, he will be released to, to unleash this final rebellion. Revelation 24 through 6, we see heavenly aspects of the millennium is the best way I could say that. And uh, we're going to look at that as we move through here. Now, um, you might could say we see how the church, the advancement of the gospel is happening uh, in the power working of the kingdom, working uh, on earth, you might say. And now you could look here and see that going on in heaven. Verse 4, Then I saw thrones seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not deceived its, um, who had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, 
Where do we see thrones in the Revelation? Other than with like Satan kind of reigning or the beast doing that, you see the throne or thrones in heaven. It's mentioned multiple times over and over and over again. Um, Where are the martyrs? Where are the martyrs in the Revelation? Revelation 6. Oh man, they're in heaven. They're under His throne. They're crying out. They're praising God and worshiping Him. And they're actually asking Him to do a marvelous work. They are in heaven. And so they are, I think the picture here is a picture of the church in heaven. Reigning with the Lord. Not on earth, but in heaven. John sees this as a vision. As he has seen many visions. And the last several visions in the Revelation are, I saw heaven opened up. So, who is participating in this millennial reign? The souls of those who've been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus Christ and for the word of God. And those who had, had died not giving into the mark of the beast. Two groups, the martyrs and those who are faithful to Jesus Christ to the very end. Means to the end of their life. So I think it's important too to just see again, and this is something to stop and consider. If you are truly a Christian, you will be among these, this group. You will either be martyred for the faith or you will be faithful to Jesus Christ to the very end. Sometimes you meet people and say, oh, I'm a Christian. Really, what does that mean? Well, I prayed a prayer one time. Well, I did this one time. Oh, I did that. I, I, I you know, at one point in my life, um, I, I went to a VBS and I asked Jesus into my heart. And, and the reality is, is that's, this is presented as those who die for the faith and those who live for the faith. That's who are among the people of God. And that's who we see here. Now, what does this millennial reign look like in heaven that we're seeing on display here? Um, one author explains it this way, and I thought it's Artaxerdi, and he did a great job of saying, I see four issues here, four things on display. In this intermediate time when the kingdom, uh, this kingdom reign going on in heaven is taking place, you see four things. For those who either die for the faith or those who live to the very end for the faith, we see those, these things going on. First, we see vindication, second, dignity, third, security, and fourth, intimacy. Now, what's powerful, and you could just go back and read Daniel 7 sometimes, and you see that Jesus has this universal authority, and now I think we're seeing the church in connection with Jesus, united to him, experiencing that. What we see here is that these people... You'll notice, just look back there in verse 4. Then I saw thrones seated on them were those uh, to whom the authority to judge was committed. That These people have been vindicated. God has said of them that they are right with Him. Just as He raised Jesus from the dead, they have been raised. I think this first resurrection picture here is that, the, the, that those who, who die in the Lord will be resurrected to Him. They will gather with Him. They will be with Him reigning with him so god is speaking about them that they are right with him that they what they live for and what they died for 
in faith that is God accepts that. Now, another thing is you see dignity. Uh, this idea of these people, uh, when we were, the scripture says when we were dead, God raised us to life in this high place, this amazing place to be among his people who've been born again. He raised us and seated us with him. So there's this place of dignity for the people of God. And, and really, you're going to see that on display in this, this, these who die before the Lord returns. One author says, our bodies are laid in the grave, but our souls immediately enter into a new and higher phase. John refers to this as the first resurrection. What does first resurrection imply? Uh, that there's another yet to come. But they have this great dignity as God's people. And so here's the deal. The first century people are facing all this trouble. They think we may die before Jesus returns. What happens then? And he's saying, well, while you're living on earth, the kingdom is advancing forward. And Satan does not have the power to stop the gospel moving forward. And you will be my witnesses throughout the ends of the earth. And you have no fear of that fact that Christ is going to build his church. And if you die, and you are uh, you die before the time of Christ's return you will reign with Christ you will sit with him you will reign with him you'll be with him uh, until the day where your body will be connected to your spirit but in the meantime you will reign with Christ verse 5 the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended that's a little kind of pause to say those who are not in Christ They will be raised one day, but it will be a resurrection of judgment. But those who are in Christ, they experience this first resurrection. They will be with their Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God uh, and, and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. This is a picture of security. Blessed are those. They have a position of status. They, 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 they will not face the second uh, death, the lake of fire. There's something about this that says, hey, you're with him. You're with Christ. You're not going to be lost. I'm watching over you and protecting you. Notice anyone whose name uh, is not written in the book of life was thrown in the lake of fire, but it's like they, their names are. They're secure. They're a part of the first resurrection. They died, but they were raised to be with Christ. They're reigning with Him now. Now, one last thing just I think to say about this is this: that you kind of are seeing this on display, and I think it's important that you and I understand like He is trying to give them confidence and security, and what he's accomplished for them. Now, the last thing I think you could see, and I thought he did a real good job of speaking of the intimacy we have. We are priests. We are priests. And he's saying that, listen, for those who die in the Lord, those who between the first and second coming, they live their lives and either die like where their heads are chopped off, or those who die because of old age, if they have walked with Christ to the very end, those who are faithful to him, they will experience between the first and second coming intimacy with their Lord. They will dwell with Him. They will experience being priest unto God. What is that like? That is being in His presence. That is in His temple. That means they dwell with Him. They experience the great blessing of being His people able to serve Him eternally. 
It's such a beautiful picture of their status and their place. And, 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 but, but most of all, I think that idea of priest is the thing of like, you'll be in the presence of the Lord. Do not fear death. Do not fear your death. Whether that be cut short or whether you live a long life, there's no fear of death. Why? Because His people will gather with Him. They will be priests unto Him. They will dwell with Him. It's a beautiful picture here for us. Now, the question then is like, how would you live today? In light of that, how would you live today? Right now, if you're thinking about what you're going to give your life to, the way you're going to spend your money, what your efforts are going to be given, all those things, when you think about all those, you think, if this is true, how would I live today? What am I investing in? What am I giving myself to if it's true that I have a future with Christ? What would that look like for me? Now, we get to 27 through 10. And we're going to pick back up what we saw in verses 1 through 3 just for a moment. Now we see there is a real devil and he is hostile towards the things of God. He has been restrained for a time. But now he's going to be let go for one final battle. Is this the last battle? Yes. How many times have we seen the battle? The last battle? Many times. But this time, the camera is zoomed in on Satan. And, and I think it's just important that we see that. Um, we know that Satan's eternal judgment was announced in the garden. It was inaugurated at the cross. And now here, it's brought to its final form. It's consummated at the very end. This is the final battle. We've seen it in 16, 17, and now 19. So, verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, again, the way I would see that, when the time period between the first and the second coming are ended, Satan will be released from prison. And he'll come out to deceive the nations that are uh, at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers is like the sand of the sea. And so Satan takes one last stand. He is released to do the work that he has longed to do. We know that, again, since this is a snapshot or a video kind of picture of him, we know that the, the, the beasts are going to be used to help deceive the people. There's this deception that's coming. And so all the nations will gather in rebellion to destroy God and His people. This is after that time period is over. That is after. And that's what we saw in the, in the witness of the church. I think it was in chapter 11 where the two witnesses went out. When the time is up, when the gospel proclamation is, is finalized, where God says this is it, all those times are over when, when, when the period of the time when the church is out proclaiming the gospel to the nations is up, then this will take place. Um, have you ever seen Kung Fu Panda? Everybody. Yeah. Everybody's like all of a sudden listening. Oh, I love that. You know, this is better than that. Okay, let's keep going. No, I'm just kidding. But I do think about the, in Kung Fu Panda, I've watched that unfortunately many times. But there is this great enemy, and he actually escapes himself. And he escapes through this insane stuff. And he's just like, I can't believe what he's able to do to get out of this great cave and prison kind of thing that he was in. And he comes out to fight one final battle, and he ends up fighting this panda that nobody thinks can win, and he wins. You know, it's an amazing kind of thing. 
But what's different about this is that Satan is set free. You know, he doesn't take a feather and unlock the little thing and then get it, you know. But Satan is set free. and, And it's almost like he's brought to this final showdown. And really what we see is God's working in all this. This story is just not about Satan. It's about what God is doing. And Satan is going to assemble his group. And he's going to gather around to destroy God and his people. You'll see here, uh, geographically, it says from the four corners of the earth. When you see that, you say immediately, it's, it's this universal army. Uh, you see the Ma- uh, Gog and Magog, which is from Ezekiel 38 and 39. Uh, it's, it's kind of the picture of a universal, all the nations in rebellion against God. Uh, You see the people are spoken of as the sand of the sea. We've seen that in the Old Testament where the people of God face these great enemies and yet God is going to deliver them. Now, notice his demise, verse 9 and 10. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The camp of the saints or the beloved city. Later in the Revelation, you're going to see what's the beloved city? It's the new Jerusalem. Who's that? It's the church. So he's coming against the church. We've seen them encamp before in chapter 7 where the saints of God are encamped and we see again this destruction that's coming on them. We've seen Babylon the harlot and now the new Jerusalem. And as you're seeing Babylon, as we've seen, it's rebellion against God. The new Jerusalem is the people of God. And we see the people, the, the people of the world and their leader coming to destroy them and they will be defeated. How long does the battle last? Not very long. It doesn't seem like a very difficult battle. God just absolutely and completely destroys them. We saw in another picture, Jesus, by his tongue, would swipe them out and destroy them in a moment. Destruction comes. There's no battle at all. Now, one last thing. And I love this, uh, and I, I've, I've read it a number of times where one time uh, Martin Luther called um, Satan, God's Satan. He's not, Satan is not doing anything that is not first, like, brought about by God. God is working out His eternal purpose through Satan. Satan doesn't escape, and God's like, oh no, what am I going to do? Rather, God's eternal purpose is on display before us. And Satan, as really a servant of God, will be utterly destroyed in the end. Now, one thing you might say is, you do not want to align yourself with Satan. Because he will be defeated. Now, last little bit. So, Think back where we've been in chapter 20. First we see Satan bound, restrained, unable to stop the advance of the gospel. He is restrained from uniting the nations to squelch God's people. The gospel begins to spread throughout the nations. Like Jesus' time period, the kingdom had come and you see the kingdom uh, moving across the world. The second picture, what about those who die 
uh, in the Lord? What if they are, they, they're killed for the faith or they just live a long life of faithfulness? What happens to them? They are reigning with Christ in that period between the first and second coming. You move forward and you say, well, hold on just a second. Okay, I see Satan was bound for a period of time and he was, but then he's going to be released and he's going to come and say, I'm going to unite the nations one more time to destroy. And guess what happens when he does? He is soundly defeated and he is, uh, he is forever defeated. And then Revelation twenty eleven through 15, we see the great white throne judgment. Who's going to be judged here? Rebellious humanity. We have seen uh, many different judgments. We've seen judgment on Babylon. We've seen judgment on the beast. We've seen judgment on Satan. And now judgment upon fallen humanity. Who is the judge? Who's seated on the throne? The Lord is seated on the throne. We saw that in chapter 4. We see this as a, a great white throne. It's pure. It's holy. It's perfect. He's righteous. He's good. And He will judge justly. You see here that earth and sky fled away. The old creation, the old system, the old world, it's running away. Why? Why would it go away? Because he's going to usher in a new day, a new creation. The old is moving away. The old is coming under judgment. It's a decreation so that it will bring place this new creation. Who are the judge? Verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. They're standing before the throne. These dead who are standing before the throne are who? It's those who died outside of Christ. It's those now who have been, they weren't, they weren't a part of the first resurrection, but they are now, uh, you're going to see this on display. They're not a part of the first resurrection. They're not with Christ. They're a part of the second resurrection, a resurrection of judgment for them. It's a very clear picture here. Notice what happens as you continue. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Now here's the thing. They are in a time period of death and Hades. They're there experiencing judgment. But there's this final judgment of them being cast into the lake of fire. How are they judged? They are judged according to their works. Every evil thought, every evil deed, every evil word. There will be irrefutable evidence no one could stand and fight against this test. This is a test of one's loyalty to the Lord. They have lived in rebellion and now they will pay for their rebellion. Say one last thing about that. You know, the scripture says not everyone who says Lord, Lord will will uh, enter in, but those who do the will of my father. It's like these people have lived in rebellion. They're paying for their rebellion now. There's two books here. There's another book, the book of life. What have we found out about the book of life? The book of life is, is, is composed of those whose names were written in it from before the foundation of the world. Are those whose names are written in before the foundation of the world, are they saved by their works? Scripture says they are saved by Christ's work. What He accomplished on their behalf, they enter in. And the reality is, by the power of the Spirit, no doubt they will do good works. 
But the reality is they are saved by the work of Christ. They were chosen from before the foundation of the world and he died for his people. Now, what is the consequence of their judgment? Then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found and written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is not annihilation. This is eternal damnation. This is eternal torment. This is eternal punishment. They will be without Christ forever and ever. It will not be a good place. Some people joke... Uh, I've heard people joke about like, oh, all my friends will be in hell, be a great place. It will not be a great place. There will be no friends, no love, no compassion, no delight, no fun. This is the last scene of judgment. And so today as you go from this study, I mean, this should be a, a delighting chapter to you in this. One, that God has promised as he is ushered in this new age, that he will send the gospel throughout the world and you're agents of him and that Satan cannot keep this work from being done. You get to serve your Lord, watching him advance the gospel throughout the world. Two, if you die in Christ, you have nothing to fear. You will be in his presence. Three, Satan will be finally defeated. He will come back one more time. To draw the nations together, but he will be defeated forever and ever. And, and, and the last thing I would say is that you understand, and I need to understand, there will be a great white throne judgment. And those who do not align themselves with Jesus Christ will be punished forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us, that you would speak these truths over us and help us understand them. I pray that we as a church would believe these things, hold fast to these truths, and walk in light of those realities. I pray we would be people who speak the gospel out into the world so that many would believe and turn in repentance and faith. For the time is short, we know. In Christ's name, amen.